Welcome to the Pastor Nick Santo Podcast, a podcast designed to help you live closer to Jesus. We hope that God uses it to encourage and empower you in His plan for your life. Now let's get into today's content. We are going to get into the Word. If you have your Bible, please, if you would, open it to the book of Acts, chapter 18. If you need a Bible... Tonight, for whatever reason, you came without one and you would like to follow along with us, grab the attention of the ushers as they make their way and they will pass a Bible off to you. Um, And let's pray beforehand tonight. And so, Father, we do just again thank you for uh, speaking through your word. We thank you for the eternal nature of it and and the the constant... um, uh, liveliness of it, that it can speak to us right now. So, Lord, we open our hearts to you, and we just pray that you would do your will and what you want to speak through through it tonight to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, we are studying, just in case you're joining us for the first time, um, through the life of the Apostle Paul. Uh, and we're doing that right now in the book of Acts, because that's where a lot of what he did um, is chronicled for us. And um, our purpose and reason for doing that is not because we want to be him. Our, our intention is not to try to model our lives um, after Paul, because um, we can't, you can't copy him. There was only one Paul, uh, and there will only ever be one Paul. So we're not trying to copy him. We're not trying to be like him. Um, what we're seeking to discover is, is something that was in him, Uh, something that was placed there by God and then accessed by God uh, that came out of his life and and that made him effective and and caused him to kind of find his reason and what he was intended to do. And that's what we want. We want the God uh, who reached and grabbed a hold of his life, and we want to see how God used him. And then we want to remember that there's only one of us, that, that there can only be one Paul, and there's only one of you, and that God has placed something inside of you uh, and only he can access it. And so we want to find him. We want to find his ways. And so we study Paul uh, for the sake of doing that because we realize uh, how important it is. So we want to know who God is. We want to know how he works. And we want to uh, extract that. When we left Paul in our study last time, he is in the ancient Grecian city of Corinth. Um, and, and more or less, Corinth was a suburb of Athens, and maybe you've never heard of Corinth except in Bible language, um, but you probably have heard of Athens, because Athens uh, was essentially the cultural, the intellectual, the philosophical capital of the Roman Empire. Uh, so if you're thinking of it in, in terms of um, the United States of America, if, if Rome in those days was like Washington, then Corinth was like New York City or LA. You know, it was kind of like the place where uh, culture is shaped and driven. It wasn't so much politics as it was um, the rest of life. And that's where Paul now finds himself. He has been there at the point where we pick him up tonight for 18 months, which up to this time is the longest amount of time that Paul spent in any one place uh, planting a, a particular church. We also uh, saw last week that there's been a change in Paul. There's something very different about the man and his, um, his method in Corinth than has been at any other time. We have seen him in other places full of strength, full of zeal, full of power, uh, full of confidence. But when we find him in Corinth, we find him in weakness and we find him in fear and we find him in trembling and uh, we find him in a vulnerability and uh, in, in really kind of an uncovering of, of what was underneath him that we hadn't seen previously. And it's uh, markedly a difference that we see within him. He uses words like despair and stress. Uh, really, you wouldn't think of Paul as being having those things. He's heroic. He's, you know, Batman, you know, not Bruce Wayne. And, um, and that's what he was in Corinth. And so there's a difference in him here. And so he spent that time in Corinth and, and many, as a result, of his time there, put their faith in Jesus. God had said, I have many people in the city, and a very large church came out of Paul's presence in Corinth, okay? Now, when God wants to move us from where we are to the next place he wants us to go, uh, oftentimes he'll stir up trouble because um, when we're comfortable, we have a tendency to fall asleep. We have a tendency to put things on autopilot and to just keep going, 
Um, that's human nature. And so when God wants to move us, sometimes he'll stir up things around us because it's time for uh, a change or, or for a shift or a change of environment uh, and so on. So that's kind of what's about to happen to Paul. And as we pick him up in verse 12, uh, let's look at the drama. It says this. It says that when Gallio was the deputy of Achaia, and Achaia was the region, or uh, we would say the county, more or less, where Corinth was, uh, even Athens was in Achaia. It says that the Jews made insurrection with one accord against Paul, and then brought him to the judgment seat. Okay, so uh, Paul has come into this place. We know that in, in Corinth, Paul has been very impactful. He's been a voice of influence. He's been very effective. And because of Paul's presence there, he is moving the spiritual tide. There was a heavy Jewish population in Corinth, and the, the Jewish leaders there were used to having the influence over uh, and the ownership, so to speak, quote unquote, over Jehovah. And now Paul is coming in. He is preaching a message that is very contrary to what the Jews believed. And people are turning to God through the message of Paul. And so um, because of the envy and because of their inability to uh, resist or interrupt the influence that Paul has, it says now that they bring this insurrection. And the word literally means a unified assault. So they, they, they get together, all of the Jews that oppose Paul, and they say, we're going to have to use every bit of leverage and, and ability that we have, and we're going to stop him. Um, and so because of their envy and their jealousy, uh, with an unwillingness to change their beliefs, the things that, that they believed and held on to, they weren't willing to listen to the message of Paul. Because of that, uh, they, they now launch this insurrection and they leverage the legal system and forge a smear campaign of public opinion against Paul. And so here's their charge. It says in verse 13, they come to Gallio and they say, this fellow, this Paul, persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. Okay, um, to persuade contrary to the law is just a fancy way of saying to a Roman deputy, a Roman uh, ruler, that he is inciting revolution, that this man is a revolutionary and he is uh, definitely a problem that you need to solve right now. Okay, now that's the charge. And it says in verse 14 that when Paul was now about to open his mouth, and so they kind of give their side, this Jewish body of people. And as Paul is about to speak in his own defense, before the words can even come out of his mouth, it says that Gallio said unto the Jews, if it were a matter of wrong or wicked lewdness, O ye Jews, then reason would that I should bear with you. He says, wait a minute, stop. He hears what they have to say about Paul. He immediately understands what's going on. He sees right through the whole thing. It's perfectly transparent and naked before him. And so he looks at them and he says, listen, if there were something that were actually wrong in this situation, or if there was something that was actually evil, if there, that's what wicked means, it means evil. If there was actually some evil going on, or if there was the word in the, in the Bible, it uses the word lewdness. It literally means criminal. If there was any crime that was actually being committed here, then it would be reasonable for you to be wasting my time. That's what Gallio uh, says to these people. He says, reason would be at that point, it would be worthwhile for me to hear you. Okay. But that's not what's going on here. That's what Gallio says to these people. He says in verse 15, but if it be a question of, watch this, three things, words and names and of your law or of your custom. If it be an issue of words, names, and your custom, he says, then you look to it for I will not be a judge of such matters. What does he mean by words? This man, Gallio, if it be a question of words, words like uh, altar versus platform. Uh, is it an altar or is it a platform? Words like, is it a sanctuary or is it an auditorium? Words like, is it a pulpit or is it a podium? Words like, is it, are they anointed or are they enabled? Is it a service or is it an experience or a gathering? 
Is it called fellowship or is it called community? Is it Episcopal or is it Presbytery or is it plurality? Those are words that people argue about that are not reasonable to be brought before Gallio. That's words. That's what he's talking about there. Just put it in the Jewish context back then. Then he says words or names. What does he mean by names? Okay, names are things like Calvin versus Arminius. Those are names. Wesley versus Knox. Methodist versus Episcopalian. Presbyterian or Pentecostal versus Baptist. Those are names. And he says, if this, if this is just an issue of names, he says, I don't want to hear about it. I don't, I, don't, I don't even want that in my presence right now. You're wasting my time. And then thirdly, customs. An issue of customs. Where are customs? Customs are methods, styles, leadership systems, processes, and or sacraments. And he says, so if this is an issue about the words you guys squabble about, or the names you call yourselves, or the way in which you do things, he says, I don't want to hear any of it. He says, I don't have room for this in my schedule, and I don't have room for this in my mind. I will not be a judge of these matters. He says, these things don't matter to me. He says in verse 16, or it says in verse 16, watch this, and he drove them from the judgment seat. Now, you can kind of get an idea of what this guy was like. You can, you can build the scene in your mind of what this whole episode uh, was like. And he just cuts right to the core of it. And he says, just get out. Get out. He, he's worse than Judge Judy. You know, he's just get out of my courtroom with this. I don't, I don't have any room for it. Now, watch what happens in verse 17. It says, then all the Greeks, that would be the audience, that would be, you know, the, the, the live studio audience that claps when the applause sign goes on. All the onlookers that are there, they're Grecian citizens. It says that the Greeks took Sosthenes, who was the chief ruler of the synagogue. So probably one of the leading voices in this charge against Paul. This man, uh, he's, he's a leader there. And so to make an example of him, they take him and they beat him before the judgment seat. And it says that Gallio cared for none of those things. He, he said, this means absolutely nothing to me, this whole uh, thing right now that's going on right in front of me, driving them out of this. He says, these matters are your internal matters. And, and the bottom line to him, he says, is they do not matter. I want to ask the question, uh, just kind of looking at this scene for a minute. I want to ask the question of why is it that there are good people that are opposed to the gospel message? Now, I, I know that as soon as I say that, there is something in your mind um, that says, well, I have a problem with that question already because, you know, really there is no such thing as a good person, right? Let me def let's define terms for a minute, okay? There is uppercase G, good, all right? And, and the Bible reserves that for God alone. That's what Jesus, when Jesus said, why do you call me good? There is none good but God alone. And, and, and Jesus kind of said, there is a classification of good that is only reserved for God and no human being can, can, can enter into that category, all right? But there is another good that is a lowercase g. And the Bible makes room for people to be considered good with a lowercase g. Jesus said in, it's probably going to come up on the screen, somewhere in Matthew 12, Matthew chapter 12, verse 35, Jesus said this. He says that a good man out of the good treasure of the heart brings forth good things, just like an evil man, uh, and, and he goes on. And so, so Jesus kind of acknowledges the fact that there are good people. All right, the Bible does that in other places. In Luke chapter 23, verse 50, speaking of a man who was not saved, he, he did not know Jesus yet, but it speaks of him. He was actually a Jew, Joseph of Arimathea. It says that, behold, there was a man named Joseph who was a counselor, and he was a good man, and he was fair. He was not saved as of yet, but he was a man that had a good heart. We read in the book of Acts about a man named Barnabas. Uh, he was a saved man, and it says of him, it says that he was a good man, full of the Holy Ghost and faith, and, and because of him, many people had his look. Okay, so let's just establish it that there are good people in the world, and, and I think we all would agree with that. Not everybody is an evil, wicked, self-consumed, narcissistic jerk, right? Like, there are some people that are decent people within this world, and sometimes we know them, and we wonder, why is it 
that someone who is a good person can be opposed to the gospel message, okay? Now, the simplistic answer that, that we kind of fall back on is that we just say, well, they love their sin, they hate the light, they hate God, you know, and, and so that's just, they're just lost, you know, and, and so we, we kind of label them and brand them that way. But, but somewhere inside, we know that that's not always the case. We know that sometimes, like Paul would say in Corinthians, he would say that, that, that the God of this world has blinded their minds, and sometimes that is the case. Sometimes there is something that the enemy does and he shuts people's eyes so that they, they can't acknowledge the truth. But there are other times that it's, it has nothing to do with the devil. Sometimes, and I think it's probably the case with someone like Gallio, sometimes people shut their own eyes. They, they close them. They don't want to see it. And sometimes it's not because of Satan. And sometimes it's not even because they hate God or because they love their sin. And, and that's what causes us to kind of question and say, why is it that reasonable and good people sometimes shut their eyes and they want nothing to do with the gospel message or the name of Jesus? Why does it happen? I remember, I'm not an evangelist, okay? I'm not ever going to be, I shouldn't say that because God does change people. It's most likely the case that I will never be the guy that will come up to you on the street and say, tell me your thoughts on eternity. Where are you going to go when you die? All right, that's just, I, I not that person, right? So I, I haven't had like a, a thousand one-on-ones with unsaved people, you know, going back and forth. But I've had a few. And I remember I worked with this guy, Dennis. He was a Jamaican guy. And he was a good man. He was not a saved man, but he was a good man. I remember um, he was an owner. There were two other owners. I was not an owner. Um, but I remember there was one day that one of the other guys that worked there went on a material run to Home Depot and had stolen like uh, a tool. Like they had kind of put it on the bottom of a cart of lumber and uh, made like it wasn't there. And they were boasting about how they, they got it for free. And I remember Dennis, like he took the whole company in the middle of the day, in the middle of a job, and he sat everybody down. And, and, and I won't do, try to do the Jamaican thing right now you know, Pakwa or whatever. Maybe I will later. We'll see if the spirit of Jamaica comes upon me or something. But, uh, but, but he just sat everybody down and he just said, uh, essentially said, this is not the way we're going to run this company. And this is not the kind of people that we're going to be. And he made them go back and pay for it. And this is an unsaved guy. He was a good man. Okay. But when we finally got into a conversation because God uh, answers prayer and, and God brought him and his family through a series of, of situations that were uh, way too intense and way too heavy for him. And he did know that I was a Christian. And so I remember one day we were having a conversation and he was asking me, like, why is this happening? What, what is going on this whole thing? And I, and I remember I made it a point always to just make it about Jesus. And so I talked to him about Jesus. And, and I'll never forget because his response, I would say, Dennis, you need Jesus. And his response would be, he would say, yeah, books, but he would say, the church is full of hypocrites and, and, and the church. And I would say, no, 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 Dennis, Dennis, not the church. Jesus, Jesus, God who came in the flesh. And I would explain to him, Jesus, he'd say, books, but Christian, Christian, they are. And he would, and I'd say, no, 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 not Christian, Dennis, Jesus. And finally, after just Jesus, finally, he said, books, that's what he called me because I always had a Bible. They called me Bible, books because of that. That was, a, I don't think me to be spiritual. It was an identity thing. You know, I thought I had to wear like a uniform, you know, in those days. But, but he said, books. He goes, I'm hoping. That's, that's Paco for open. They put an H before vowels. I don't know why they do that. But, but he says, I'm open. And I said, good, you're open. I said, then all you do is give your life to Jesus. And I said, I'll tell you what. If nothing happens, you can dismiss it as though it's not even real. I said, you give your life to Jesus and see what happens. And so he says, okay. And he prayed and he accepted Christ, okay? Now, that was a Friday. He comes back on a Monday and God had already changed his life. And, and to this day, God has changed his life, his family, his marriage. I mean, he is a, a completely different man, okay? Now, he was opposed to the gospel message, not because he loved his sin or loved darkness or hated light or was against God. Do you know why he was opposed to the gospel message? Christians. Christians. I'll tell you why in a, in, a, in, a, in a couple, I'll tell you why in three words. Words, names, 
and customs. And because of words and names and customs, he said, I don't want to hear it. I don't want this in my seat of judgment in my heart because I have seen it and I have heard it and I have lived among it and I have seen the plastic veneer and hypocrisy of what it represents. And he says, if that's what it means, I don't want it. And I believe that there are good people in the world that are opposed to hearing the gospel message for no other reason than what they have seen of it represented in their presence because there is so much of Christianity that exists within the world today that is inauthentic, plastic, it's a facade, it is really self-absorption, ego and arrogance that's hidden behind a shield that says truth and compassion. And people like Gallio, reasonable people, discerning people, see right through it and they say, I just, I, I don't have time for this in my life. I, there's enough circuses going on and that looks to me and smells to me just like another one and I don't need that in my life. Now, I want to paint a picture for you of what, what it's supposed to look like when it's actually healthy. When a relationship with God and when a group of people that are communally relating to God together, fellowshipping, we call that a church, when a church, a, a group of people is actually healthy and attractive to people. Now, to do that, I'm going I'm to summarize a small passage of what happens next, and then I'm going to pick up the story again back down in verse 24, because here's what happens. After this whole thing with, with Gallio and Sosthenes getting beat up, after this, Paul leaves. He says, I got to go. And he takes with him Priscilla and Aquila, these two people that he had met in Corinth that had gotten saved there and now were companions of Paul. He takes them with him and Paul then leaves Corinth. He crosses the Aegean Sea, comes back into Asia Minor. In Asia Minor, he goes into the city of Ephesus and he decides or spiritually is moved in some way that he needs to go to Jerusalem. So he leaves Priscilla and Aquila in Ephesus. And that's, you, that's the part you got to uh, hang on to for the narrative. Priscilla and Aquila are in Ephesus. And then Paul leaves Ephesus, goes to Jerusalem. And then from Jerusalem, he kind of moves quickly through Asia. And we'll find Paul again when we get to chapter 19. So Paul is absent for the rest of what happens in chapter 18. Okay, so Aquila and Priscilla, that's a husband and a wife. They're in Ephesus. And all of a sudden, a new Christian voice comes on the scene in Ephesus. Watch what happens in verse 24. It says that a certain Jew named Apollos, that is not Apollo, like Apollo Creed, different, totally different character, but a certain Jew named Apollos who was born at Alexandria, an eloquent man, and mighty in the scriptures came to Ephesus. And this man was instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in the spirit. That means he was passionate. He was charismatic. He was zealous. He was loud. He spoke and taught diligently the things of the Lord, knowing only the baptism of John. And he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, whom... When Aquila and Priscilla had heard, they took him unto them and they expounded unto him the way of God more perfectly. And when he was disposed to pass into Achaia, remember Achaia? That's the county where Corinth and Athens were. So Apollo says, I need to go. I feel like God is calling me to go into the region of Corinth. I need to go over there now. It says that the brothers, the brethren wrote exhorting the disciples, the, the Christians in Corinth, to receive him who, when he had come, helped them much which had believed through grace. For he mightily convinced the Jews and that publicly, showing by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. All right, so here, here's what's going on here, is that this guy named Apollos comes into the region of Ephesus where Aquila and Priscilla are. Here's the things that we know about Apollos. We know that he was a gifted speaker. We know that he was a powerful preacher. We know that he was educated. 
that he was very passionate and persuasive in the way that he would use words. And he had a way of getting past the surface of a person's mind and kind of reaching into their soul and moving things around. I don't know if you ever heard anybody that has the ability to do that, but Apollos, when he would speak, he did that. We're told also that he was driven, that he was diligent in the way that he went about things. And we're also told that he was incomplete. In other words, he didn't have all of the facts. He only knew the baptism of John, which means this, that his message was essentially an Old Testament message. He didn't understand the concept of grace and of the new covenant and of the forgiveness of sins and the free gift of grace that came through Jesus and his death on the cross, which meant that he was persuasively and passionately preaching a message that was heavy with condemnation, with a call to conformity of the behavior, not transformational power of the spirit on the inside, and a call to look like something, to appear like something, rather than to let Jesus get in and do something. His was a message of do this, not a message of this has been done already through the person of Jesus. Okay, so there was something that was missing. Now, here's Aquila and Priscilla. And Aquila and Priscilla, they have the message down. They have been taught by who? Paul. They have spent a year and a half or more now with Paul. They were the first ones, the first converts in Corinth. They really understood the message of Jesus the implications of grace, the way the Old Testament unfolds into the New Testament. They knew how, to, how a church was supposed to operate. I mean, they had been students of Paul. And here they are in Ephesus, and in walks this passionate, educated, eloquent, influential, fiery preacher who doesn't have things quite right. So what do Aquila and Priscilla do? Okay, here's what they do. They see Apollos. They see his energy, his charisma, his talent, his ability to influence and persuade people. They hear his message and understand that it's not perfect. And they immediately, in their mind, they recognize the difference between Apollos and Paul. Apollos and Paul are different. Their demeanor is different. Their method is different. Their approach is different. They're different than Paul. This is a totally different thing than what we know in Paul. And so they decide we need to step in here. We, we need to, to do some things because there's some red flags about what this could do to the church if we don't take control of this situation. We need to make sure that everyone knows that Apollos doesn't have things quite right. We need to warn the Christians. We need to defend the Paulist church, the first church of God in Paul that has been planted and that is being planted. And we need to defend it. We need to put a sign up outside that says it. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to record 40-second snippets of Apollos messages. And we're going to put them up on YouTube. And then we're going to comment with the scriptures on why Apollos should not be listened to and be completely disregarded. And, and the way we'll get people to listen to it is we'll title the video, Beware Last Day's Deception at Hand. And everybody's going to say, yeah, Jesus said there's going to be deceivers. And we know Paul said we're in the last days. This is, this is serious. This is important. We've got to listen to this. We're going to call Apollos out publicly, and we're going to show people why they shouldn't listen to him, and we're going to stop his influence from making a difference. Now, we know, okay, that I'm not, that is not actually what happened. Right? Because that practice didn't come around until the 21st century. And we're still back in the first century way back then. That's not what they did. Okay, So what did they do? Right? And I want you to listen very carefully to what they did. Because what they did is what is right. Okay, The first thing it says is that they, wait for it, heard him. Did you hear that? What did they do? 
they heard him. The word in the Greek, it literally means that they listened carefully. Do you know what carefully means? It means care fully. They listened fully to the message that Apollos was given until the point that they really understood it completely and in context, more than just once. They heard what Apollos had to say. To hear means to listen, to consider, to perceive, and to understand, which means they did the work of really evaluating and unfolding who he was and what he was trying to do. Then it says the second thing, it says that they took him unto them. And it's an interesting word in the Greek. The Greek word is paralambano. And para means to come alongside and to take someone in. And the only reason I point out the Greek word is because it's not the only Greek word for, t- for took. There's another one called epilambano. And you know what that is? That's confrontational. That's like, all right, come here. We're going to set things straight with you, Apollos. We've been with Paul. You know, no, no, that's not. It wasn't epi. Lumbano, it was para Lumbano, which means this, is that they formed a relationship with Apollos. They opened their hearts to Apollos. They let him into their lives and, 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 and hoped that they could be involved in his life. And they began a relationship of mutual respect and reciprocation, meaning that their attitude was, I have something to learn from you, and maybe you have something to learn from me. We are both following the same God. Let us come into communion with one another. They opened themselves up to fellowship with someone who was not exactly like them. Now, once they received the relational equity permission, he allowed them to speak into his life. And listen, you will always need permission to speak into someone's life. You will never get very far if you just come up to someone and say, hey, I want to talk to you about something for a minute because uh, I've been to a few seminaries and I've studied Paul extensively and I have a few degrees that if I tried to say them, you wouldn't even understand what they are. And so I have some authority in this matter and I heard you say something. Listen, you're not going to get too far, all right? Relational equity means, like, listen, let's, let's, let's see what we can help each other with. We have something to add to each other. We're, we're both on the same path. We're going in the same direction. Let's see where we can meet in this whole thing. And, and, and in the relationship, Apollos saw that they had something that he needed, that he wanted, that maybe he was lacking. And they were then able to expound to him the way of God more perfectly. They were able to look into his life a little bit and say, hey, just wondering, you know, is this a struggle for you? And in a moment of vulnerability and relational transparency, Apollos could say, yeah, it actually is. You know what? I am preaching these things and I believe them with all my heart, but I'm finding trouble appropriating them in my life. And I find that it's more of an effort than it is naturally coming out of me. And then they can look at him and they can say, well, there's a reason for that. It's because there's more to the story than just what John preached. Because Jesus didn't just come on the scene and heal and feed people, but Jesus went to a cross, died, resurrected, and now Jesus has literally come inside of those people that place their faith fully and trust in him. And the work that he does is from the inside out, and it becomes more a natural expression of who you are and not a laborious effort of you trying to become something that you are not. And Apollos would say, I get it. I understand it. And I receive it. And there was a a movement, a beautiful expression of Christian adding to Christian, adding to Christian, which built the kingdom of God, added to the movement of ministry. And so he was then able to go to Corinth, where it says that he helped them much who believed by grace. Do you see the difference? John versus grace. Old Testament, New Testament. It worked. It's a beautiful expression of how love, acceptance, and unity are supposed to work in the church. Now, I wish that was the end of the story and we could say that the church got it and that's just the way it always was. But Apollos does go to Corinth and when Apollos goes to Corinth, he brings something very different than what Paul brought. He brings fire. He brings persuasion and passion and charisma. And he brings eloquence and a way with words 
And all of a sudden now, he comes into Corinth and a conversation begins amongst the Christians of words and names and customs. And the words and names and customs, like, well, you know, I really like that message, man. Paulos, he brings it. Man, he brings it. It's powerful when Apollos. I know I never remember feeling that depth. I never remember feeling that when it, man, it's just alive, it's living. And someone else will say, Yeah, it was good. But there's something about the way Paul's just in his simplicity and, and just the calmness and the, the Christ-centeredness. That just, man, that speaks to me. And, and little by little, there began to be this, well, I really like Apollos. Well, I, I kind of really like Paul. And someone else going like, man, you guys are a little crazy. Like, let's keep it to Peter. You know, but this, this is Paul, Apollos. And so all of a sudden, instead of one church building, you have three church buildings. This actually happened. One of them said the first church of Paul in Corinth. The second one said the second church of Apollos in Corinth. And the third church said the church of Cephas. You know, we wear robes. Cephas is Peter in the, you know, in the, in the New Testament. You don't believe me that it actually happened. Uh, you can look at it. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Watch this in verse 11. Paul writes to them because of it, because it's serious. He says, for it's been declared unto me of you, my brothers, by them which are of the household of Chloe, that there are contentions or divisions among you. He says, now this I say, that every one of you says, I am of Paul, and I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, I am of Christ. Paul says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? He says, and I, brethren, I could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. He says, I have fed you with milk and not with meat. For hereto you were not able to bear it, neither yet now are you able. And here's the proof. For while one says, verse 4, that I am of Paul and another that I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? In other words, Paul is saying, you don't get it. If you are putting one against another, if you are comparing ministers and voices and servants and qualifying the strength of your Christianity based upon the spiritual giftedness or emphasis of the people that you're listening to, you don't get it. He says in 1 Corinthians 3, 5, he says, who then is Paul and who is Apollos, but ministers by whom you believed, even as the Lord gave to every man. He says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither is he that plants anything, neither he that waters, but God that gives the increase. So he that plants and he that waters are one. And every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. In other words, he says, stop it. I almost called this message, stop it, but I didn't because you wouldn't have thought, known what I was talking about. You know, That's what I'm saying to you at this part of it, is stop it. Stop putting one against another. Because you know what happened in Corinth when, when all this division happened? Is that the fight went inward. Okay, instead of battling darkness, they started trying to divide the light. Instead of going after souls that needed Jesus, they began to try to uh, emphasize and, and put their energy upon battling with one another to see who had more truth than the other. And Paul says, you guys are missing it completely. You're wasting your opportunity in the world. A couple weeks ago, I was in the Solid Ground Cafe during an event at the church, and I saw a brother that I hadn't seen in quite some time. And we had uh, some nice fellowship. We were just having a great conversation and uh, having lunch. And he looked at me and he said, um, he said, Nick, he goes, who should I be listening to right now? And I said, I said, what do you mean? He said, well, who should I be listening to? You know, pastors, teachers. And, and I said, okay. I said, what are you going through? And he said, what do you mean? And I said, you know, like in your life, like what's going on in your life right now? What are you going through? I said, because my answer to your question depends on what you're going through right now. Because I could answer that question. I could say a hundred different things, you know, but, I, but if you tell me some things that you're going through, then maybe I, and he goes, oh, that's interesting. He goes, I don't really know. And I'm like, well, you know, talk to me. What's going on in your life? And, and, then, he, and then he just goes, he goes, Nick, he goes, I just don't want to be deceived. That's what he said to me. He goes, I just don't want to be deceived. And I said, okay. I said, what do you mean by that? And he said, you know, like Joel Olstein. That's, that's what he said, right? This is the conversation. And I said, oh, I said, interesting. 
I said, it's interesting that you should say Joel Osteen. I said, because if you told me when I asked you what you're going through, if you told me that you were going through a season where you felt like you were inadequate and totally not measuring up and that your life was wasted and that you were a mistake and that you were having a hard time connecting with God because you couldn't accept you, I would have told you to listen to Joel Osteen. (laughs) And then I said, furthermore, I said, furthermore, we live in a generation right now where we have been pumped full of the message that we are insufficient. Most of us were told our entire child and adolescent life that we're not good enough. We went to schools where we were told we're not good enough and that we don't measure up. We had coaches tell us that we needed to do better and that we weren't good enough. We watch television and are exposed to media that is shouting at us that we're not smart enough, we're not pretty enough, we're not good enough, we're not rich enough, we're not intelligent enough socially or otherwise. Every voice around us in our generation is telling us that we are inadequate and insufficient. And I said, and if you want proof that people need to hear that they mean something and are valued by God, look at the size of Joel Olstein's congregation. Why are there 50,000 people that are going there every Sunday? Because we have been smushed into the ground and told that we're meaningless and worthless, that we're just decrepit losers and that we have no, no, no standing or any hope or any reason that we should be something. And here's a man that God has raised up. You can argue with me with that if you want. That's telling people, no, you mean something. You have value. There's a reason for your life. You're an individual that God made in his image and he wants to do something with you. And people need to hear that message. Do you realize that in in the Old Testament, you have the prophets, you have the major prophets and you have the minor prophets. And do you know that God raised them up individually to speak a specific message to the generation that was in front of them right then? Those prophets, they weren't weren't, by and large teaching Genesis to Revelation, the whole whole Bible. Uh, No, God said, this is what is needed right now. Go speak it. And we are in a generation right now where we are so enclosed in what we think is, this is all there is, that we've cut ourselves off from everything else. And you know what I've found? I have found that many times, when Christians tell me that they don't want to be deceived or they're afraid of being deceived, what they're actually saying is that they're afraid that God might exist outside of the box that they've become comfortable in. And that's just the fact of the matter in the days uh, that we're living in, okay? The divisions, the conflicts, the debates that happen in the church over voices of people that speak they are, by and large, the reason why Gallio or the girl in the office next to yours or your neighbor or a good person that for some reason doesn't want to hear it, that's the reason why. Because they hear and see and are exposed and they see that Christians, it's nothing but words and names and customs, and a fight, and party lines, and a leverage for who's got the most power or influence, who has the corner on the brand called God. In a nutshell, it's spiritual arrogance. It's what it boils down to. It's the attitude that we're complete, it's too bad for everyone else. We're doing it the right way, we've got it right in our denomination, or our sect, or in our method, and so it's too bad for everyone else that doesn't. Do you know who the loser is in that context? You are, if, if that's you. You lose in that whole thing, okay? Because as soon as you think you have everything that you need and that there's no one outside the box of your brand of Christianity that has anything to speak into your life, your progress is what's stunted. You stop. You know what Jesus said? Jesus said, they that are whole have no need of a physician, but they that are what? They that are sick. In other words, Jesus says, essentially, he says, if you want to get well, if you want to be whole, if you want to go beyond, then you first have to realize that you don't have all the answers. That there is someone somewhere that you didn't think about outside the box 
of the voices that you're listening to that has something to say to you that is the answer to the thing that you need most right now. And because you are closed off or too spiritually arrogant maybe or whatever the case might be, you're not getting it. And do you know, do you know why I'm, I'm saying this and I'm passionate about it? Because I lived in that box for so long. And when God, and, and it's a story for another time, when God brought me to the place where he was like, hey, can you see me? I'm like, yeah, I think so. And, and when finally God was like, you got to get out of that box, get out of the box. All of a sudden I get out and, I, and I'm there and I'm like, oh my goodness, like I'm healing. Like I'm hearing things that I never would have allowed myself to hear. And it's, 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 it's re- I didn't know I was broken in this way. I didn't, I didn't know that this needed to be touched. I, I didn't know that, I, that this was, was even a problem right now. And, and I feel like, honestly, I feel like, remember the lepers in, in, in the days of Elisha? And, and they were about to die. They were just there and they're, they're leprous and they're like, we're just dying. There's this famine. And, and, and they're like, let's just go into the enemy village and, and try to get some food. If we, if we go into the village and there's food, maybe they'll feed us. Maybe they'll kill us. But if we sit here, we're going to die. And so they go into this village and God had emptied out the village and all the food was hot in the rooms. And these four lepers are like, you got to be kidding me. All these houses are sitting here. They're full of food. And all the people back in, in the box are starving to death. We, we can't just sit here and eat it. We got to tell them. There's food out here. There's food out here. And, and I feel like that leper. Is it, we got to get out. Get out. Get out of the box. You know. Listen, God has placed so many people. We have access to so much teaching. So many people that have been touched by God in such specific ways and given messages by God and they see things through a certain angle according to what God's done in them and, and done through them. And it's things that we need. He wants to do a deep work in us. And not only that, but it is the thing that is going to cause the world to look at us once again and say, maybe they've got something that we need. And it isn't just about words and names and customs. We desperately need to do it. Okay, what's the solution? Here's the solution to deception, because there are deceivers. You say, what about the deceiver? Here's the solution to deception. The solution to deception is to genuinely walk with God and trust him. That's the solution to deception. Because what does he call himself? He calls himself the good shepherd, right? He leads us beside still waters. He leads us in green pastures. He's the good shepherd. He lays down his life for his sheep. And so it is the responsibility of the shepherd to lead the sheep. He doesn't even put that on us because remember what Jesus said about the Antichrist? He said that if it were possible, he would what? Deceive even the elect, which means that Jesus knows that we certainly have the capacity of being deceived. So he's not telling us to trust in our own reason. But if you walk with him, and you put your trust in him, then he will lead you. And he knows how to do it. And he does it. Okay. I have found in my own life that for me, a fear of deception, and, and I'm saying this for me, I'm not saying this because I understand there's a, so many contexts of deception. There's cults and things. For me, okay, the fear of deception is more rooted in pride than security. Because I don't like to feel lied to. I don't, I don't like to feel like I've been uh, hoodwinked, okay? I have been deceived, I, I, I fully trusted a man who was making a huge impact in the world, and he put on this air that he was living in poverty for the sake of building the kingdom, and it turned out that he had a double life, and he was living like an oligarch in a third world country. I was deceived, but it didn't shake my faith. I felt stupid, but I, but I wasn't going to go to hell, I've been deceived by pastors that claimed to be and then turned out to be. And it didn't shake my faith. It didn't turn me from Jesus. It didn't make even the things that they said necessarily wrong. I felt stupid, but it didn't change the, the landscape of my faith, okay? My problem is that I believed their character aligned with their message, and I found out that it actually didn't, okay? But here's what else I've discovered, is that if I will not listen to someone else's message 
because I am afraid of being deceived, then I already am deceived. And here's how. The deception is that I don't think I have something to gain from what God has placed in someone else to give. And hence, I've deceived myself out of perhaps the deepest healing that I need in the season of life that I'm in right now. What's the solution to Gallio? Gallio is the person, the good person that doesn't want to hear the message because they've seen the church as a circus and not as a place of true salvation. The answer for Gallio is kind of tucked into the text a little bit. It's in the man Sosthenes. Remember Sosthenes? You can't forget that name, right? He was the guy that got beaten back in uh, chapter 18, verse 17. He gets beaten. He got the sauce beat out of him, Sosthenes. He went from having special sauce to becoming meat sauce, you know. And I wonder what happened after that beating. You know, he's there on the ground, and, and I imagine that, you know, this is a whole group of people, like he was beat up pretty badly. And the Greeks left. I think the Jews probably left because they didn't want to get beat. They, they knew they weren't the, the popular party there that day. Gallio didn't care for it. He left. I think there was one man, one man standing there, one man standing there with Sosthenes laying in his own sauce on the ground. I think it was Paul. And I think Paul probably picked him up. He said, come on, let's go for a walk. Let's get you cleaned up. Paul took some time and, and talked to him. And, and, and something changed, something, something clicked in Sosthenes' mind throughout the whole thing. He said, these are the people I came with. They kind of ran away and meant nothing. Gallio, he didn't care for this whole thing. And, and, and there's something that can happen sometimes where you just kind of wake up. I don't know if you've ever had that moment, you know, where you've been just going in a rhythm for so long and you forgot even why. And all of a sudden you just kind of go like, what am I doing? And Sosthenes had one of those moments, and, and Paul was there, and Paul genuinely loved on him, just genuinely loved him, extended, showed Jesus in his action. You see, you're kind of making that up, because I read through that whole chapter with you, and that never happened. Okay, maybe I am a little bit, but I want you to read 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. It's going to go up on the screen. First verse, first letter Paul wrote to the Corinthians. He says, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother. This man Sosthenes, who was the chief ruler of the synagogue and probably the ringleader of those that opposed Paul, in some way was touched, impacted, and influenced in a way that he went from being an enemy of the cross to not only being a lover of the cross, but he became a co-author of the book of 1 Corinthians with Paul. He is listed with Paul as an author of the book. His life was changed. How? Through love. He was, he was genuinely loved by someone who really knew God. He wasn't judged, castigated, put off, mocked, spit upon, even mentally. He didn't look at him and say, yeah, see? <laughs> I guess it was you this time. See ya. He loved him. Do you know there's not a more powerful, more transformative force in the world than genuine and true love? I was listening to um, Lewis Howe's The School of Greatness podcast. I don't know if you ever heard of it. Um, uh, I love it. It's so cool. And uh, Lewis Howe's a uh, former pro athlete, and now he just like interviews these amazing people that have done amazing things in the world from every field and walk of life. And uh, he interviewed this um, psychologist who's a brain scientist. And that stuff kind of fascinates me a little bit, you know, the, the way the brain works. So I'm listening to this uh, interview. And it turns out, you find out about halfway through the interview that this psychologist, his specialty is psychopharmacological medication. So he prescribes drugs to people that are depressed, psychotic, anxious, uh, that kind of thing. And, and that, that, then I get a little bit turned off because that's not my uh, favorite way to deal with psychosis and, and different things. Not that it has no place. It's just uh, you lose me at that point a little bit. But I listened to it anyways. And, and so um, what this man said and his first name was Daniel. I can't remember his last name. Um, he said that there is a point that you reach uh, in depression or anxiety that there is no cure except medication. And Lewis, who um, I don't know if he's a believer or not, he, he, said to, he said this to the man. He said, really? He goes, I had a, another, another brain um, scientist on this podcast at one point, and I interviewed him. Um, and he shared his own story, and he said that he had depression um, to, to the level of almost suicide uh, chronically for years and years and years, and that when he met his wife 
and fell in love, that it completely healed him and he recovered from it 100% without any medication or any other treatment. He says, what do you think about that? And this brain psychologist said, there is not a force more powerful in the world than true love. And I know that. And if you are here and you've experienced that, you know that. Our call is to be genuinely loved by God and then to genuinely love people and genuinely love each other. What did Jesus say? He said, all men will know you're my disciples by what? The love that you have one for another. That is what we are called to do. We're called to love. That is the solution uh, to the whole thing. We've got to close. If you're here tonight, and you're here for the reason that, you know, you're kind of on the outside looking in, you're Galio, and someone dragged you in here for the first time, and you, you, you know, you're a decent person, but otherwise you would have uh, no, no room for this. Just get this out of my mind, out of my sight. Here's what I just want to say to you in close, uh, closing um, remark to this study, is that you are right now in a room full of broken, incomplete human beings that have the exact same struggles, problems, and needs as you and as everyone else on the entire planet. There is not one person in this room that is better than you are or better than anyone else that's in here. And the only difference is that we have come to know a God who loves us and invites us into communion with himself and promises to be a father, to be a shepherd, and to be a friend. And he is a God who accepts you as you are, he sees what's in you, and he calls you to himself, and he gives you the promise that he will lead you to wholeness, to truth, and to be the answer to your deepest questions and needs. And that God removed every obstacle that would stand between you and him when he sent his son into the world through the person of Jesus, and he hung on a cross, and he paid the price to forgive you of every sin and make that a non-issue as you approach him. And you can know him. And it begins very simply with you just from your heart saying, Jesus, I give you my life. And that's the invitation that God gives to you and that we give to you tonight. Not wanting you to join a platform, a party, a name, a custom, or a word. But to know Jesus. Jesus. And if you're here tonight and this message challenges you in some way, because maybe... You look on the horizon and all you see is the side of a cardboard box that you've been in for whatever reason. I just want you to know that God exists on the other side of the wall of that box that you become comfortable in. And I promise you that there are things that you need on the other side of the wall of that box that you are comfortable in. And the thing for you to do is to just simply pray to God and say, God, forgive me and free me from being critical, from being arrogant, and from having a loveless spirit. And Lord, lead me to the people that I need and the voices that I need, and then lead me to the people that need me. It is so critical in the days that we're living in right now. I have so much more to say, but let's pray. Father, we just thank you for uh, the, the, just the size. And I think of Jesus, how you said that in my Father's house are many mansions, and I think of how you said, even Jesus, you said, I have things to say to you that I, you're, you're not going to be able to bear them now, but when the Spirit comes, he's going to lead you into all truth. And so we just pray, Lord, that you would enlarge our hearts. In a sense, Lord, we pray, we pray the prayer of Jabez, who just said, enlarge my borders. Lord, we ask that you'd enlarge our hearts. And that, God, you would just teach us to love Christians unconditionally. That you would teach us to give the benefit of the doubt. That you would teach us to listen without criticism and without without having seven layers of defense. That you would teach us to hear with discernment. And that you would teach us how to open the closed parts of our heart that need, need your word maybe expressed in a way that we're not used to. Help us, Lord, to be the kind of church that's attractive to a lost world. I pray, Lord, that you would remove from us any aroma of a circus or of a sideshow, or of something that's just about words and names and customs. Teach us, Lord. Make us effective that we wouldn't waste the time that we have. And lead us, 
deeper in a walk with you, to know you and to trust you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Thanks for joining us for the Pastor Nick Santo podcast. To regularly receive these teachings, be sure to subscribe so you can get it automatically when it's released. If you find this material helpful, please share it and help us get the message of Jesus out to others. We also appreciate your feedback, so if you would, leave us a review in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts, or email us at pastor.nickpc at gmail.com. Until next time, may you continue to love, learn, and live the way of Jesus.